clothing and the pages of books uh, wasn't lost on early modern readers. Right. Um, right. I, I can give you an example. Yeah, no, that's something I found fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah, just how this sort of stuff that if you asked me, I guess, in just for some reason on the street, if someone said, are text and textile related? I would think about it and I would say, sure, of course. But uh, I, I really did uh, like a lot how a lot of the individuals you talk about in this book and just in this time period, this is not something that anybody would have had to think about. I guess. I, had, um, I, I, I thought that was very interesting, a very big difference between today, I guess, and living in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think they did think about it. Right. Um, yeah. and, the, and there's like all these jokes, uh, running around in sort of 18th century novels and, um, uh, poetry and things like that, that, so the best, the best paper was actually made from white cotton and linen rags and most, and most of it actually came from women's corsets. So you have all of this, uh, poetry, um, kind of floating around in the newspapers of the period that are linking, um, sort of uh, love letters, billet-doux to the actual paper itself, right? Because they're recognizing that they're reading some woman's former corset, right? Yeah, so yeah. These intimacies between um, women's bodies um, and the pages that you're reading or writing on. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the, the sort of more libertine-esque authors of the day certainly recognize this. Right, and I kind of cut you <laughs> off earlier, sorry, but you had mentioned you, if you want to give one or two examples of, of uh, of writers who would do engage in that, I guess, feel free. Um, sure. So. Uh, I mean, I think the best example, um, and I talk about this a little bit in chapter three, yes, chapter three, um, was Samuel Richardson. Uh, he was one of the first uh, first novelists in the early 18th century. He wrote a, um, a seduction novel uh, called Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. Um, and uh, in that novel, he is trying to, to seduce a, um, a female servant in his household. Um, and she's writing letters home to her parents. And in order to hide the letters from him, she actually stows them in her corset. Um, and so the seduction scene is actually, you know, a scene where he's trying to not just, you know, undress her, but actually get at her letters, right? To get at herself. And so there's this conflation between the two. And um, I talk about the story a little bit in the book, but uh, there was a, you know, he was a British novelist um, and look over to the other side of the Atlantic 30 years later. And there's a female shopkeeper named Molly Malam and she's selling textiles out of her store in Rhode Island. And she um, is also selling copies of Samuel Richardson's Pamela. And what she does is really clever is she says, you know, I have all these textiles for sale. Um, but also two sets of Pamela. Um, and, she, and she puts them right between the two different kinds of corsets she's selling, right? And so she layers the novel actually within the corsets, recognizing that the novel itself, which is epistolary, I'm not telling the story very well. Yeah, no, that's... Epistolary is, you know, it, you know, it's the letters that Pamela is writing that are in her corsets. And then, you know, the shopkeeper in North America recreates that scene in her advertisement because yeah, you actually know what she's No, it, like, a, like an inside joke, just if you're, yeah. Uh, and a transatlantic well, inside joke. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody else who, a transatlantic person I want to talk about, um, more, I guess she would be more of an editor than a writer, uh, but her name was Virginia Farrar. You talk about mm -hmm. her and I guess her family a little bit, uh, a bit about in the book. Uh, which and she is a an, just an illustration that the business of colonialism isn't really just strictly the business of of European men. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that somebody paid a lot of money for one of her books. Uh, well, 
who is Virginia Ferrara and why would someone pay so much for, for a book that she'd written in the margins? Sure. Um, so Virginia Ferrara was a woman, um, an English woman uh, born in the sort of early 17th century, um, but she was born into a family um, and a family business very much involved in colonization. I think that's another facet of colonization we don't always think about um, that it wasn't it wasn't European governments necessarily doing the colonizing. They were giving money and support to businesses. And so right. she was, so she was the daughter of um, John Farrar, um, who was involved in the Virginia Company of London, right? And so these were these were very much companies. Um, and she so she was named for the colony. Actually, I think she was one of the like first first people to be named for the colony of Virginia. Um, but she and her father were trying to think about ways to make the Virginia colonies more, or the Virginia colony more um, uh, profitable. And one of the ways that she was thinking about that was uh, through the act of sericulture, which is silk production. Um, and so, yeah, she was involved in scientific experiments. She was in conversation with natural um, history writers of the day and, and other scientists and the governor of Virginia itself. And so she was a very much a, a, a transatlantic um, author, editor, um, experimenter, scientist uh, um, with her kind of hand on the pulse of what Virginia could be. Um, so why did they buy, why did the John Cotter Brown Library back in 19, 08 or whatever it was, buy this book um, for so much money. Um, I mean, I think it really had to do with the fact that the, um, you know, most of the antiquarian societies and um, historical societies were really trying to build these collections of Americana um, in this sort of backward looking act of, of nation building. And so I think they recognized this book as um, important to the history of um, what will become the United States in one way or another. Um, but I think they only bought it. I mean, the, they, well, the story gets a little more complicated because they actually bought two books, right? Yeah, they, they bought, bought two books. I can books, tell right. that story, which is kind of fun, but. Um, uh, we probably shouldn't just because, okay. I, 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 I want to point out, I had several more questions for you that I literally just had to cut out before I okay. said, uh, before I, I, I sent I send these in advance uh, so that folks know about what I'm going to ask them, basically. But there, I mean, you know, I I want to I want to make sure we get to to all of these for sure, and then. Uh, but we will return a little bit for sure to sericulture uh, also because I want to get into to that a little bit. Um, for now, I want to talk about something that happens in 1719. You give a good, really good background to this. This I had never, and I'm not. I'm much more uh, knowledgeable about Me American history, I guess, than British history. But in 1719, 250,000 British wool workers engaged in a violent strike. And one thing that struck me was that the wool workers attacked printing presses. Mm -hmm. um, would you talk about this? What's some of the background, I guess, leading up to this strike? Why, why are these people so angry? Sure. Um, so, I mean, you have to kind of go back in time a little bit uh, to the foundation of the um, British East India Company and the beginning of um, the importation of, of Indian cottons into, into England. Um, and, you know, this battle between the British East India Company, um, Indian cotton textiles and British 
wool production and, and you know what had been going on at this point for like 30 some years in 1700 they passed the first calico act um and that meant that all calico that was actually that was printed that had color that had designs on it could not be imported into into england because it, it so threatened the british wool industry um but there was a caveat they could still continue to import um blank white cottons. Um, so then, you know, fast forward the next, you know, 20 years, uh, really savvy printers, um, people who are used to printing books um, and books with images, uh, they started repurposing their presses to print on the blank sort of cotton, Indian cottons. Um, because the Indian cottons were actually really, really popular. Um, they were really lightweight, they were versatile, you could use them for clothes, you could use them for um, furnishings. Um, and so there was this loophole where the printed uh, cotton textiles were still in circulation, um, and wool workers were were, you know, losing business. Um, right. they, they felt that their their trade was threatened, um, and so yeah, they they went on strike. Um, and some of the women actually marched in the streets with their their distaffs that they would use for for spinning and 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 kind of kind of attacked anyone wearing wearing cotton textiles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, no, I just thought that was that was pretty pretty interesting. Um, Okay, and I, I want to talk to, uh, I, I put two links in the show notes. Um, one is going to be to take us to a piece called The Apotheosis of Franklin. And I just want to talk about this a little bit. I thought it was just a really neat image. And uh, for you listening, there are many, many great uh, pieces of art that are, are, are talked about and, and in this book that... Uh, are just excellent. I've just given you a couple of examples here. Um, but at any rate, uh, I want to talk about uh, this one. And let me bring this up here on my uh, browser so I can uh, take a look. And I'm really sorry. Whoa. I just, whew, I'm sorry. Uh, I realized my laptop was not plugged in and it gave me a message saying, uh, <laughs> I started to panic there for a second. Um, okay. Uh, all right, so let me take a look at this. Danielle, would you tell us, uh, talk about uh, what this piece is and I guess what it, it, it represents and uh, who made it, what, uh, whatever you'd like to talk about it. And then I might ask you some questions about particular in, you know, imagery inside of it. Sure, I, I mean, just a link to the, the last um, question about um, Calico. Uh, this, is a, this is a piece of, of cotton printed in, in, in England um, by, by, you know, on those repurposed uh, printing presses. It's from 1785. Um, and it really, it narrates uh, an important Atlantic world sort of event, right? The American Revolution and subsequent independence. Um, you have all the figures there, right? You have Franklin, and hopefully people can see the image. Uh, you have Franklin, and there's like his famous quote, um, where liberty dwells, there, it, there is my country. Um, you have Washington, and he's driving this chariot with um, the allegorical figure of America in the chariot with him, um, actually holding a scroll of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, and it just so that, I guess it would that be like Lady Liberty or something like that. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you have uh, an indigenous American, um, a composite, obviously, because uh, they, yeah, um, with a flag that says "Unite or Die." Um, there's another flag that's juxtaposing the Liberty Tree and the Stamp Act, um, which we know is like one of the things that led to the Revolutionary War. Um, and I think 
uh, you know, one way to really think about it um, is that texts, uh, it's, it's actually recreating all the texts that were foundational to um, nation building. This is the early Republic, but it's British, right? And it's actually made, um, it's not Indian cotton. It's made from cotton that was produced by enslaved people in the US. Um, so, I mean, a couple of ways to think about it. Um, if this textile is kind of narrating national founding, slavery is integral, is built into the fabric of right. the nation. Um, and secondly, that nation building, we might think about it in always already transatlantic, transnational context, right? This is a British textile. Um, it, is, it is printed on um, American cotton, but um, so I think that that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, that is very interesting. That I mean, uh, it, it, that, and I, and I guess, kind of what it kind of shows is that you know you can have the, the an American Revolution can't kind of divorce America from the Atlantic world. I mean, it's not. I'm sure they would have loved to have had that on, you know, because it's really a. I mean, it's a a symbol, I guess, of of the of the nation and everything. I'm sure. In, in a in a perfect world, the people who made it would have uh, wanted it probably on 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 American made fabric. I'm guessing, unless this is just uh, anyway. This is just kind of my spec. I, I just thought it was kind of neat. Um, and what's actually kind of funny about it is that fabric. I mean, they would have made you know bed linens out of it. Like, could you imagine like being yeah. like, British and you're going to bed and you're being tucked in by Franklin in Washington? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um now. I want to I want to uh, frame my next question by uh, with a quote that you wrote. Um, I thought it was just a, a really neat line. Uh, quote: The example of Indian cotton asks us to see Western industrialization as an imperial import of technologies and practices, rather than an, as an export to colonial peripheries. Unquote. Would you please unpack this a little bit by, and, and, and I, in particular, I really enjoyed your explanation of how, just I guess how, the, how these economies were connected, India, Britain, Africa, North America. Um, I guess we've been kind of talking about this a little bit, but uh, please. Sure, um, I think, you know, the story we usually tell about cotton um, is, is more of a, it's not an early modern story. It's a, it's a story of, about, you know, modernity, industrialization, um, the, the cotton South, right? Um, an industrialization in um, Massachusetts and New Hampshire and places like that. If you move the clock back a little bit, um, you start to realize that, that the story of cotton really and its production um, is, is perfected um, in the sort of Indo-Atlantic exchange between these places. And so India was producing cotton long before Britons even developed a taste for it. And so when they started importing it, um, they, they weren't very good at fashioning it, um, at, at printing on it. So they had to actually import a lot of those technologies in order to do so, including um, what we might think of as the early factory system. And so rather than thinking about the factory system as developing in, um, you know, Manchester or the Lowell Mills in Massachusetts, um, you really need to think about it developing in, in South Asia first. But that's not to say that it's just unidirectional. I think that that's the thing you need to think about when you're thinking about the Indo-Atlantic world, as you pointed out, that brings together um, uh, West Africa, um, South Asia, to be honest, East Asia, Britain and North America, is that, um, 
South Asians started to be really get really savvy about their British buyers and started recreating um, designs and things like that that were being developed by Spitalfield silk weavers. And so you really have this back and forth conversation um, that's taking place within the textile it, itself. Um, if you can kind yeah. of read between the, the the weave, if you will. Right. Yeah. And okay. I also, I you know, I cut this question out. I was just looking. Um, now, I, I, I kind of let, there's, I guess, uh, part of the reason what uh, attracted me to, I guess, studying the Atlantic world is just this idea, you know, that I guess Western civilization really is, has a lot more of Africa and the Americas in it than, uh, than just only just Europe. I mean, like, you know, only strictly European history. And if you buy into that idea, I guess, you also kind of implicitly have to buy into a, an idea of, well, well, it doesn't, that if we're just talking Atlantic world, aren't we just, we're going to just leave out Asia and pretend it has nothing to do with anything. And uh, I just, uh, t tell us about what, what do you mean by like Indo-Atlantic world, I guess? What do you uh, mean by that? I thought that was really uh, kind of neat. Um, yeah, I mean, this is not a term that that that, that I came up with, um, but I guess one way to think about it is uh, this is going to center um, um, England again a little bit. Yeah. Um, but they were developing uh, empires and and colonizing in two directions at the same time, right? Um, they were de they were developing their connections in um, India, South Asia, and. Um, North America and the Caribbean. So you really need to think about an Atlantic world that stretches to the Indian Ocean because they were imagining an economy um, where, for instance, after the Calico Act of 1700, um, printed Indian cottons could be imported into England, but then immediately re-exported to the Caribbean, right? And so these were these are deeply interconnected um, uh, economies uh, that came with their own material texts um, and politics as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I, you know, I, I just, I, I had never heard the term Indo-Atlantic before and I thought that was, was kind of neat. Um, okay, now one of your chapters is called Materializing the Black Atlantic. And mm -hmm. I, I could probably ask you a bunch of questions about it because um, I have like a macabre fascination, I think with the history of slavery and stuff. But I, you, you took, you begin with a very powerful story, uh, in, in my opinion, about an enslaved woman named Cuba. Um, and I, I would love, just love to share, if, if you could, it, who was Cuba? Why do I know about her? And I guess, why do we know about her? And, and please, just talk about that, because uh, she is, seems like a remarkable one. So, so we know about Cuba um, because uh, an overseer by the name of um, Thomas Thistlewood recorded something like 20,000 pages of the day-to-day -day life on the plantation that he was overseeing, um, as well as his like incredibly cruel, cruel acts. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it, it's a, it provides a wealth of information. Um, but the thing about Cuba, Cuba's story that I think is great is that it really disrupts his record. So what happened that day, um, you know, that he was recording, uh, Cuba and another enslaved woman, um, both were seamstresses and they were put to work um, sewing clothes for other enslaved people. Um, and uh, instead of doing that, um, Cuba actually stitched on the smock of Sil Silvia, Silva, um, the initials of um, Silva's various lovers, um, uh, you know, um, ranging from uh, free, 
um, black men, enslaved black men, uh, uh, white men on the island. Um, and so and so Thistlewood saw this happen and, and had to record it in his journal. But when he did so, he actually had to stop his line of writing and recreate the stitches um, that Koopa had actually sewn. Um, and so, you know, we have a couple ways of thinking about this. One, it really kind of disrupts his authority, um, but two, they were writing. Koopa right. was writing, right? Koopa was writing with needle and thread. And so I think that, you know, it's a, it's a really important example. Well, we don't have the smock that, you know, obviously we don't have that. Um, we do have the record in Thistlewood um, of an early example of Black Atlantic women's writing. Um, and I think that what's really powerful about it too is that this early example of Black Atlantic women's writing is uh, textile-based and that textile-based text um, completely disrupts Thistlewood's record that day. His writing stops, he has to kind of draw and record right. what happened there. So I think that that's, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a really powerful story. And it's actually, um, that was the first chapter I wrote for my dissertation. It's one of the only chapters that actually survived from the dissertation. So huh. it's really, this is the story that got me interested in writing this book. Yeah, no, I mean, I really, I think it's fascinating. And um, in, in that chapter, I think you, I, I think anyway, you also mentioned uh, an artist, Brunias's work, Linen Market, which talk uh, shows uh, a, a scene at a, a Jamaica, I think it's Jamaica still, but at a marketplace, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in 1770 Jamaica. Um, well, what is this? I've also, uh, by the way, left a link in the show notes for those of you listening. Uh, if, what do you think this captures about Jamaica? And do you think also, on the other hand, uh, does this piece miss anything about Jamaican society? Uh, like, you know, certainly we're not gonna, Cuba certainly isn't on there uh, stitching, uh, stitching something. But anyway, uh, please go. Yeah, um, so, I mean, Bernice, produced a lot of these paintings. They were essentially souvenir art. Um, and they produced, you know, they, they represented the Caribbean, um, the Caribbean exactly as uh, people back in Europe, um, slaveholders, plantation owners wanted to see it, right? As a sort of benign paradise um, where you have all this kind of multicultural mixing, um, but all the hierarchies will remain in place. And so if you're looking at the image, um, that sense is recreated with, you know, the white women are standing, um, uh, mixed race women are serving and black women are, are, are laboring, right? And so it recreates that hierarchy. Um, and one scholar actually calls it ethnographic art, like it's invested in taxonomies. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, what are they missing? Um, uh, I mean, these are obviously uh, fictions. Um, that's not what life in the Caribbean looked like. Um, but secondly, I mean, these marketplaces, these Sunday marketplaces, uh, these weren't places where the hierarchies were maintained, right? They were, they were places where um, Black women, um, especially the producers and sellers of textiles, were really in charge of both sort of the rules of assemblage um, and how exchange actually happened, right? And so, you know, I think that he's trying to impose hierarchies, racial hierarchies, social hierarchies on an environment on an event that actually disrupts them. And you can start to kind of see that in the painting if you start to kind of look at um, who seems who seem to be the movers and shakers, right? Um, who's passive, um, who's active, right? And so it kind of, I think his, his own art starts to undermine the hierarchies he's trying to impose. Okay, now, and I realized I, I kind of skipped a question here. I, I, and we you talked a bit about the relationship between women's clothing and paper. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I want to add in the American Revolution specifically to that. Uh, how how does how how are these three things related? Women's clothing, paper, and the American Revolution. Because I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty neat. Okay. Um, oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I'm trying to think about where to start. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I guess you have to start with the Stamp Act, right? Um, so I mean, you're an historian of the Amer of North America. Yeah. Um, so you know, the Stamp Act um, required a lot of official to carry the embossed stamp. It was expensive. Um, and so, uh, you know, as people started protesting the Stamp Act, um, they were, they started engaging in these non-importation and non-consumption agreements, um, which meant that they were simultaneously not using the stamp paper, um, but also not buying the British East India Company imported cotton textiles and other things um, coming from from England. Um, but if you think back to, you know, the initial conversation about paper making, what's the problem here? Right, if you're not consuming textiles and you're not buying paper. You um, have no source of paper if you don't. You have, have no source cloth. of paper. Right. Yeah, um, and so uh, you start to see uh, women engaging in um, lots of spinning. Um, there's lots of spinning bees um, where they're trying to produce as much linen as possible. Um, and so, you know, uh, saving rags becomes a political act. Um, I, rather than just sort of a, you know, in home, home economics, um, you know, save your rags, you know, for, for liberty. Like, right? like sort of like the victory gardens, I guess, later in World War II. It's just a... Totally. Yeah. Um, you saw, you see sort of uh, paper mills springing up everywhere and their advertisements um, aren't really about like, oh yeah, come to us for the best paper. It's like, sons and daughters of liberty, <laughs> bring us your rags. <laughs> uh, you know, if we can, you know, if you can make masks, you know, in the 21st century political, um, they made rags political back then. Right. Wow. That's cool. Um, yeah, and, 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 yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. And, and kind of relatedly, uh, one of the big themes of this book that I, I kind of is tied into that is that uh, I think you, you wrote something like, like that written text is the textile of the empire or the state or something like that. And, or, um, and I thought that was pretty, pretty neat. Like, do you want to talk about that a little bit? What, I mean, like, I guess like there's an importance to like without text, I guess you can't really, it's like so important to the quote unquote, the law and order of the, the state or whatever. Um, Uh, I, I guess, would you like to talk about that a little bit? I don't really know if I even really have a, a good question there. I, I apologize. But um, I just thought that was a really neat line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, one of the things you, you see happening from the early, early stages of even Spanish um, colonization um, is the, the rise of the notary. Um, and I'm, again, not the first person to talk about this, but um, you needed, uh, it wasn't just about landing in a place, you had to record it. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's not, you know, you have, you have the fabric of empire, but you also have an empire of paper. Um, when these things are, are, are interrelated, um, it's, if you can control the word, right, you can control the land. Um, and so you have this sort of, um, you know, thinking about the Spanish empire in, in the Americas, uh, this, this, this push to destroy any other kind of writing technology or any other kind of um, 
uh, technology of record, right? And a lot of these were, were textiles. Um, in the case of like the Maya codices, they were um, actual writing. Uh, and so, um, Am I getting at your your question? Here? Yeah, no, you okay. really are exactly, uh, and I, and I mean like another. If you want to speaking on that too with the with the Maya, if you you have a, a big section on Inca writing that I I cut that question out as well. I was like really scared that uh, you know, that I you know I. I I looked at my questions for like 15 or 16 of them. And I was like, boy, if we like end up spending five or 10 minutes on all of these this is going to be too long. Uh, but um, would you like to talk? I mean, I, I think the, the Inca in particular, I think shows us that uh, I guess the relationship between text and textile is predates Western civilization, probably altogether. And uh, it's certainly, it's, it, this is just a, uh, just a fact that text and textiles are related. It's not just something specific, I guess, to the way, you know, the way they did it in ancient Greece or whatever. <laughs> um, would you like to talk a little bit about the Inca, uh, the way the Inca would record their writing uh, or knowledge on that particular, excuse, pardon me. Sure. I mean, they had the knotted records. Um, uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that the book is trying to do is to really kind of um, look at um, writing cultures in the Americas um, across deep time. It does have a, has, has mostly a focus on um, European writing and textiles, um, but uh, because I'm not, I'm not trained as an indigenous scholar, so it kind yeah. of come in as examples. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the big, the big takeaway though, is that people were using textiles, um, I, as, as, as a technology of record, right? Long before Europeans arrived um, and even after Europeans um, had begun um, colonization. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about like in the case of like kumbi cloth, for instance, um, I, I mean, these, these tell the stories, right? They were, they were, they were, they were uh, like highly prized textiles that were really important to tying together um, the state before colonization. Um, and then even after colonization, that was another image in the book. Um, you start to see those woven records evolve to kind of um, actually bring in the imagery important to um, enslaved Africans that are coming in from West Africa, for instance. And so you start to see these as like multi, um, uh, are these, you know, texts as textiles that are recording um, different cultures experiences and kind of a melding into extra creolized culture. Yeah, it, it, kind of building on that, you, you end the book on the topic of decolonization, and uh, you talk about uh, the role that traditional weaving practices play in these movements, and would you like to talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, so I start the book off uh, with the... Um, uh, the, the Maya weavers movement, which is ongoing um, in, uh, uh, in, in, in Central America. Um, and, you know, their, their kind of claim is that, you know, the return to, or not the return to traditional weaving, um, but the sort of maintenance of it, right? They're saying that, uh, that, te that textiles are the books the colony couldn't burn, right? These are, these are the places where traditional culture has been maintained over the past 500 years. Um, and I think that one of the things that um, is, is really interesting about that claim um, is that they're redefining 
understandings of authorship, right, as not rooted in, in the individual, but rooted in the collective. And I think that that really gives us, um, it's an important lesson to literary scholars and, and other people. There's this whole conversation that's ongoing about how do you decolonize the canon, right? How do you decolonize literary studies? And there's all these push, there's this big push, like, okay, we need to include, um, literature by these authors um, and kind of consistently expanding the canon. And so one of the arguments of the book is that canon expansion is not decolonization. Um, you need to decolonize the idea of what writing is, right? To get back to that moment in early colonial history when the Spanish and the British uh, and the French, right, decided that this is what alphabetic writing is what writing is. Everything else is just commodity, right? And so right, you need right. to kind of bring back that connection um, between uh, the worker and the object they make, right? And I think I say this in the conclusion, but um, the the object is the worker's text, right? And especially when you're thinking about textiles. So uh, yeah, and I mean, that kind of thing, I mean, if you look at the India uh, independence movement, right? Um, it was all about a return to traditional weaving practices. Um, uh, and so like, I mean, this is happening uh, kind of throughout regions that are that we would now call post-colonial right there, yeah. there often is this return to traditional textiles and uh yeah folks at home if you're hearing that like there are ways that you can if you want to support that you just have to you know the stuff you're buying you you yeah. know you can buy clothes and and, and uh, accessories that are are made by indigenous people uh, just to throw that, just to, so I can throw that out there. Now, I, I want to blow people's minds, right? The last question I have here for is, uh, I found it fascinating and I never really, you know, and, and reading it, I realized, yeah, you know, she's right. I, there is a lot of this influence in early America. Uh, you know, just thinking back, like, yeah, they, they talk about this. You know, I, I just, I, I, I'm going to just break it out of the bag here. You talk about an early Chinese influence on colonial America that I think would shock and astonish some people who are hearing this. Uh, would you talk about what what is this early Chinese influence? Um, you know, I guess we're bringing it all back to Siri culture. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it had to, it had to do with silk, um, and it also had to do with uh, um, the fact that that. North American merchants had never been able really to allow to go to China or to India because of the fact that the East India Company kind of controlled those trade routes. And so North Americans were always being forced to buy things that had actually been re-exported um, to North America from England. And so yeah, one of the first things that happened in 1983, or sorry, 19, not 19, 1783, let's go back a few hundred years, <laughs> um, was that uh, they sent, um, you know, a ship called the Empress of China um, to China, right? Um, and they sent, they, it left New York Harbor on George Washington's birthday. Um, the builder of the ship and um, the people who were supercargo and sailing the ship were all sort of heroes of the American Revolution. Um, when it arrived in, uh, uh, you know, port, um, they fired 13 shots for the 13 colonies. So, I mean, it was the arrival they're sending the ship to China and the arrival there was deeply allegorical. It was about kind of showing that um, the United States was a newcomer on the world stage. Um, and, you know, going, you know, moving forward, uh, oh, and they also sent um, 
an entire cargo of, of American um, ginseng, right? It's sort of an American like specimen commodity. Um, I mean, it was all about establishing the United yeah. States. Um, but establishing it in relation to um, the East rather than in relationship to other right, yeah, like a, like a breaking away. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like a, mm -hmm. they really kind of saw it almost like a breaking away. Like, well, we can align our trade and everything with 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 China and everything. And some, and I didn't add the. I'm, I'm not going to add these to the uh, to the show notes because we're not. I, I can't remember specifically what it was that reminded me. But some of the images you have of some of the silkwork that's being produced. I, it made me realize that yeah, there is a lot of, of art being made in America that has a very uh, Asian kind of influence, like a lot of Asian influence to it, uh, I guess. Um, and anyway, I'd never really, you know, similarly to the text and textile relationship, I guess I'd never really thought about that before. Um, so I appreciate you very much for, uh, I, I like to say that that's actually one of the best things I, I, I enjoy out of a good uh, book about history is, I mean, anybody, frankly, can write some things down that I don't know about, and then I read it and I learn something. But uh, I, I really, you know, thank you very much. What your book did for me was to expand the way I even look about history, you know, new ways of thinking about history. And I, I think that was excellent. Um, yeah, anyway, and like I said, that's definitely not all the questions I've got, but that's all I think we're going to have time for. Uh, we'll save some of the rest for the books. Folks, once again, the book is Fabric of, uh, excuse me, Fabric of an Empire. The author is Dr. Danielle Skihan. You can find a helpful link to Johns Hopkins Press where you can purchase the book. Uh, let me tell you, this would make an excellent gift for the holidays for any of you history, for any of your history nuts on the list. Um, Danielle, happy holidays. Thank you so much. Uh, if there's anything else you want to add uh, before I hit stop on record, please let me know. Uh, just thanks for having me, Jesse. This was a great conversation. Yeah, no, I really like Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. I'm, I, I'm glad that I can uh, just spread it around so other people can, can learn about it. Yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, so. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And now we're taking over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Uh, Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny.